truth-oriented. Go KBU, and thanks again. This is a legal ID. You are listening to KBOO Portland, and I am Dr. Demento, just barely legal. This is KBOO Portland, community radio for the Pacific Northwest. Right now, it's the bedtime radio show for grown-ups, Gremlin Time. And good evening and welcome to Gremlin Time. This is Fortunato. Let's see, we're going to present three pieces from a book by local writer J.D. Chandler, who passed away about a year ago. This is called Murder and Mayhem in Portland, Oregon. And J.D. got into a lot of really interesting Portland history. And so we're going to get into the dark side of the Rose City with our first piece, Mayhem on Morrison Street, 1878. The violence of the Old West that is pervasively portrayed in the movies and popular literature is mostly a myth. The truth is that Western cities such as Portland became more violent the farther they got from pioneer days. The two most common forms of murder in the 19th century, as in the 20th and 21st, were killings that arose out of domestic disputes, such as the murder of Mortimer Stump and alcohol-related violence, such as Portland's first recorded murder, the shooting of Cook. The third most common motive for murder is robbery. The excitement and public uproar that accompanied the shooting of Louis Joseph, a 14-year-old boy, during a violent armed robbery in downtown Portland illustrates how rare these kinds of crimes were at the time. The public execution of two of the robbers in 1879 was the most attended execution ever held in Portland and required military occupation of the area around the Multnomah County Courthouse. By 1878, Portland was a bustling metropolis, collecting and distributing ore, beef, wool, and wheat from the Columbia and Snake River country, as well as fruit, hops, and lumber from the Willamette Valley. These commodities collected in Portland for transport to the rest of the world. Manufactured goods, clothing, and other necessities were made in Portland or came in from San Francisco for distribution to the countryside. This brisk business left a good residue of money in Portland that was gathered up by the merchants, sea captains, and real estate speculators who are now revered as the fathers of the city. Very little of this money remained in the hands of working people, and the little it did was absorbed by the saloons, the bagnios, and opium dens of the waterfront and the north end in the area that is now known as Old Town. Most of the working people in Portland, a disproportionate number of whom were single men, lived in a boom-or-bust lifestyle, and pawn shops did a brisk business. Walter O'Shea was a prosperous pawnbroker with a shop on the south side of Washington Street between 1st and 2nd, an area that is now a parking lot and the approach to the Morrison Bridge. In 1878, it was a busy corner with several shops and stores of various kinds. Business was good. On Monday, August 19th, O'Shea had more than $8,000, $180,000 in modern terms, in his safe. But he had removed most of it, and the next day, he probably only had about $1,000 cash in the shop. Shortly after he opened on Tuesday, two men, known as Archie Brown and James Johnson, entered the store, said they wanted to buy blankets. 16-year-old Charles Swartz, a.k.a. Joseph Suarez, came in behind them. Brown and Johnson dickered with O'Shea over the blankets. When Swartz came in, Johnson admonished him to close the door. Why? asked the young man. We don't want anyone to see, Johnson replied. 
The men agreed on a price, and Johnson offered cash for the blankets. O'Shea squatted down behind the counter to open his safe and get change. Brown picked up a convenient iron bar and brained O'Shea with three vicious blows. The first blow to the top of O'Shea's head opened a deep wound in his scalp, exposing the skull. The second and third blows aimed at the back of O'Shea's head were not as strong, but they rendered him unconscious. Johnson sprang to the door, locked it, and then scooped the jewelry from the window cases, stuffing them into a handy valise. Brown grabbed the cash from the safe and took the valise from Johnson. Ed Miller and Lee Brackenstos, two pioneer layabouts in their early 20s, were standing on the sidewalk across the street from O'Shea's. Brackenstos, one of the first white men born in Oregon, was the son of a military officer who had stationed at Fort Vancouver. He would later be a pioneer morphine addict. Miller's forte would be forgery. In 1878, they watched the three men enter the pawn shop and then saw Johnson lock the door and grab jewelry from the window. Looking down the street, they spotted Constable Sprague and Fireman W.W. Sweeney talking on the corner. Alerted to the robbery in progress, the two unarmed men approached the pawn shop, spraying cover the front, while Sweeney attempted to get around to the back. Sweeney had to climb up to the roof to see into the backyard. As he reached the roof, he heard shattering glass, saw the robbers break through a window and climb the fence into the adjoining yard. Brown brandished a pistol as the men walked boldly through the Lewis and Strauss store and out onto the sidewalk of First Street. Sweeney motioned to Sprague, letting him know which way the men were going, and Sprague gave chase. The men turned west on Alder Street, with Sprague in pursuit. The valise that Brown was carrying was heavy, and he had trouble keeping up with the other two running men. As they reached the corner of Third and Alder, Brown was heard to say, Damn it, let's make a stand right here. I've, I've run just about as far as I, I'm gonna go. Johnson looked back and saw Sprague getting close. He said, give it to him. Johnson and Sprague kept running. Brown turned, pointed his Navy pistol at Sprague and fired. Just as Brown fired, Sprague bent down to pick up a rock to throw at the robber. Louis Joseph, 14, who had been working at his father's glazier shop on Alder Street, came out of the store to see what the commotion was about. The bullet, intended for Sprague, struck the boy in the center of his chest and he died instantly. Brown fired once more, and Sprague ducked behind a tree to avoid being shot. The three robbers jumped into a horse-drawn wagon in front of the Weeks and Morgan grocery store and raced from town, heading west on Morrison Street. They abandoned the wagon at 15th Street. Brown, who had become frustrated with the heavy valise full of coins and jewelry, removed the coins and distributed them among his partners during the wagon ride. He also rifled the jewelry, keeping the most valuable and smallest items, such as a diamond set valued at over $1,000 and several gold watches, before discarding the valise and much of the jewelry in the backyard of a residence. The three men disappeared into the woods of Washington Park, then known as City Park. Within minutes of the shots, hundreds of people, many of them armed, had poured into the streets of downtown Portland. Police Chief Lucerne Besser personally took control of the investigation and sent eight armed officers in pursuit of the robbers. Within an hour, more than 50 well-armed volunteers had joined the hunt and guards were posted on all routes in and out of the city. Even Jim Turk, who would soon become a dominant force in the crimping trade, got into the act, bringing in two men he arrested when he became suspicious of the $100 he had found on them. The two men were quickly released by the police, but it would be surprising if Turk didn't end up with their money somehow. 
Some historians have questioned the pervasiveness of gun ownership in the 19th century West, but there is plenty of evidence that most, if not all, Portlanders owned guns. Two days after the robbery at O'Shea's, the Oregonian reported on a series of burglaries on the remote east side of the Willamette. In every reported case, the burglars were foiled when homeowners opened fire with shotguns or handguns. These reports are common in the Oregonian through the 1870s and 1880s. Portlanders believed in citizen participation in law enforcement. When violent crime threatened the community, especially when it involved children, armed posses were formed to support and sometimes coerce the police in their investigations. In the case of O'Shea's robbers, a reward of $250, in current days it would be like $5,500, posted within an hour of the robbery, stimulated the citizen response. Unarmed crowds, numbering more than 100, continued to surround the city jail in the interest of seeing justice done if any suspects were located. Fortunately, no suspects were caught that day or the next. There was a large public funeral for the Joseph boy, and a crowd of supporters accompanied his body to the Beth Israel Cemetery on Taylor's Ferry Road, south of town. Public sentiment ran high, but with no suspects, it began to cool. After the funeral, the crowd downtown began to disperse. At about 11 p.m. that night, Special Officer Gwen and another man were scouting the lonely road north of town along the Willamette on the way to Linton. Near the Terminus Saloon, a notorious dive that had already witnessed a fatal shooting that summer, two hunters startled a group of three men. Two of them ran off in different directions and got away. Charles Swartz was captured and returned to Portland. Swartz, 16 years old, had arrived in Portland a few weeks before on a ship from Philadelphia. A runaway with no money or prospects, Swartz was picked up by two men who lived in a hotel in the North End. Taking a fancy to the boy, the two men told him that he was too good to work and that he should stick with them. They even paid his board at the hotel while they cased the city looking for a target to rob, although Swartz said that he thought they were looking for work. The two men were Eugene Avery, 24, of Waterton, Wisconsin, known by his alias, Archie Brown, and a man called James Johnson, who was also in his early 20s. His real name was never revealed. Avery had migrated west from his impoverished family farm at the age of 16, arriving in Sacramento in 1870. Avery worked as a farm laborer and soon drifted into petty crime. He served two terms in San Quentin Penitentiary for theft. During his second incarceration, he made the acquaintance of James Johnson. Johnson was said to be the black sheep of a socially prominent San Francisco family and served a long term in San Quentin for armed robbery. Upon his release from prison in 1878, Avery bummed around the San Jose area looking for work, then decided to buy a cheap fare to Portland to see if the grass was greener. Avery claimed that it was a coincidence that he ran into Johnson in a North End dive in Portland, but the two jailbirds soon got together and were sharing a boy and planning a crime. Avery followed the river, hiding during the daytime and traveling at night. He was ragged, hungry, and discouraged when he reached the Kane farm 11 miles west of Portland, concealing the watches and cash that he still carried from the robbery. Avery told the family that he was Archie Brown and asked if he could stay on the farm a few days. It was harvest time and there was plenty of work to be done, so John Kane agreed to rent a bed to the stranger and then stayed away from the farm during the day, pretending to look for work, but actually 
hiding in the woods. After four days, Cain and his daughter were highly suspicious of the young man, and soon Cain arrested him and took him to Portland as one of O'Shea's robbers. Johnson, who had gone south when Swartz was captured, made his way over the West Hills and was finally arrested in October 1878 in Los Angeles, where he was trying to sell the diamond set from O'Shea's. He was returned to Portland on October 29, 1878, quickly convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Avery was also sentenced to death. Swartz, under the name of Joseph Suarez, was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life. Although both Johnson and Avery said that he had nothing to do with the robbery and had been surprised by it. Swartz died of consumption in prison in 1883. In the public mind, the execution of Johnson and Avery in March 1879 was one of the great events of the decade. People began to gather around the Multnomah County Courthouse before dawn on the day of the execution. Nearly 4,000 people gathered on the streets that morning to witness the hanging. A large number of Chinese, as many as 800, also attended the execution. They were curious because a Chinese killer, Ong Lee, was sentenced to hang later that year. The city was taking no chances on the large crowd disrupting the proceedings. Cannons were stationed at the corners of the courthouse, and soldiers of the Emmett Guard, City Rifles, Portland Battery, and the Washington Guards assembled around the stockade. The militia soldiers assembled at 8 a.m. Their bayonets glistened in the pale early spring sunlight. By noon, guards were stationed at all of the street corners in the neighborhood. The scaffold stood inside a stockade of tall wooden planks that enclosed the block to the south of the courthouse, where City Hall now stands. The crowd filled the yard to overflowing, and many people pressed against the fence, peering through knotholes. The hanging was scheduled for 1 p.m., but the prisoners didn't emerge from their cells until 1.40 p.m. The two condemned men were taken to the gallows, and Sheriff Ben L. Norton read the death warrant before asking the prisoners if there was anything to say. Johnson answered nothing. Avery took full advantage of the opportunity. Jumping onto the trap door, he denounced the judge who had condemned him for prejudice. And then he began a long recitation of the details of his life and the crimes he had committed. Sheriff Norton was lenient, allowing Brown to talk and sing songs for nearly half an hour. Johnson finally snapped, Brown, I wish you'd get to the point. This suspense is terrible for me. Avery finished up with a religious appeal and a plea for people to heed his example and avoid crime. Then the men were hanged. The year 1879 was a busy one on the scaffold. In addition to Johnson and Brown, Ang Lee, a Portland Chinese man, Jackson Grant, a digger, probably a Modoc Indian, and three Alaskan Indians were executed in Portland that year. Public hangings remained a fixture of Portland life until the state of Oregon took control of executions in 1903. The last public execution in Portland was that of A.L. Belding, who killed his wife, his mother, and another man on June 11, 1902. The trial was conducted quickly, and the execution was scheduled just days before the new law went into effect on June 1, 1903. Tonight on Gremlin Time, we're looking into the darker side of Portland's history. This is Fortunato, and I'm reading from Murder and Mayhem in Portland, Oregon, by Portland writer J.D. Chandler. Our next part, The Court of Death, 1881. It was a raw and blustery morning on Friday, November 25th, 1881, 
as two men walked along the north waterfront toward the Nikolai Planing Mill, where they worked. The waterfront near the foot of Everett Street was a muddy field full of debris, dominated by lumber mills and the boneyard where disabled steamboats were stored. Derelict boats were moored in the shallow water or beached in the mud. The two men were startled to see two naked human legs waving from the shallow water just offshore. Bodies in the Willamette were not unusual. It is a big river, and it was routine for people to fall from boats or even to commit suicide by jumping into the river. Some bodies from farther upriver would wash ashore in Portland as well. The two mill workers hurried on to their work at 2nd and Everett Streets. When they arrived, they reported the floater to the foreman. Coroner Jim Garnold had to use a small rowboat to pull a corpse out of the river. The ankles were bound together with a piece of wire, and Garnold struggled for a while before realizing that a rope tied around the corpse's neck was attached to a hundred-pound stone. Finally getting the body to shore, he found that it was a man in his early 50s. The man was wearing only his shirt, collar, and tie. The only identifying marks were semicircular scars on each eyebrow and a trimmed gray mustache and chin beard. The corpse had been in the water for a few weeks and had evidently been thrown overboard from a small boat, judging from its position in the river. The water had been unusually low that fall. The body might never have been discovered. Gerald put the decaying body on display at the city morgue, and many people viewed it, but none identified the dead man. A young prostitute named Dolly Adams viewed the body and took great interest in the things that had been found with it. Tangled in the victim's shirt was a small white towel. Dolly hurried home to the boarding house where she lived in Portland's Tenderloin District and shared the news. Carrie Bradley, the 28-year-old woman who employed four prostitutes in her bagnio, was very interested. That afternoon, she gathered all the towels in the house and burned them in the parlor stove. The body remained on display for several days, and then someone said that they thought it might be a man named Andrews. Gerald probably wanted to get the ripe corpse out of his morgue, so he buried it in the potter's field and let it go at that. Belief James Lampus was involved in the political infighting with city council member Lucerne Bessier that would soon end his long career on both sides of the law. According to Officer John J. Flynn, Lapius accepted $500 from Carrie Bradley to allow her and her accomplices to skip town before they'd be connected with the murder. Constable Sam Simmons, though, was an ambitious young cop intent on making a name for himself. He refused to let the unidentified man rest in peace. The body had been badly beaten, either shortly before or shortly after death. But the two semicircular scars on the man's eyebrows seemed to be very old. Simmons decided that these scars were the key to the man's identity. Assuming that the dead man had been a visitor in town, Simons checked every hotel, asking the staff about a man with scars on his head. Soon, he discovered that James Nelson Brown from Freeport, Washington, had been staying in the National Hotel in October. Brown had worked for several years as a timber spotter in Freeport, just across the Columbia River from Clatskanai, Oregon. In the fall of 1881, he decided to retire and sold his land, heading for Portland on a spree with $4,000. In today's money, that would be about $89,000 in his pocket. Arriving in Portland, he checked into the National Hotel on Front Street at Yam Hill, just blocks from the Tenderloin, an area of open prostitution surrounded by saloons. He began to frequent saloons and bagnios, he gambled stayed drunk for days. 
1881, prostitution wasn't legal, but it was not considered a serious offense and was often tolerated. In the 1880 census, 58 women listed their occupations as prostitute. Almost every one of them lived on the square block bounded by Third and Fourth Streets, and Yamhill and Taylor Streets. This is the block known as the Tenderloin to contemporaries, but the Oregonian commonly called it the Court of Death. In 1881, it consisted of two or three large houses, referred to as boarding houses or bagnios. The rest of the block was made up of small cottages known as cribs, just large enough for a bed, a washstand, and a window seat, where women could sit to entice customers. Carrie Bradley kept the house that stood on the southwest corner of Third and Yam Hill. In the 1880 census, she listed her occupation as boarding house keeper and had four boarders: Faye Williams, 21; Molly Moss. 15, Molly Thompson, 19, and Belle Boyd, 21. All four women were listed as prostitutes. There were also two Chinese men who lived in the house as servants, probably muscle. The women's names were very changeable. By 1881, each of them was using a different name. The young woman known as Belle Boyd was known as Dolly Adams one year later, although. We we may never know her real name. Belle Boyd was the name of a famous Confederate spy of the Civil War. Dolly Adams was a performer known as the Water Queen, famous for her swimming act. One night in October, Brown ventured into Carrie Bradley's place. Bradley, at 28 years old, did not actively work as a prostitute by this time. She came to Portland in 1877, probably from New York by way of San Francisco. She was an attractive woman, but she had a mean temper and a violent streak. For the previous two years, she had been in a relationship with Charlie Hamilton, a well-known saloon brawler. There had been more than one violent altercation at her bagnio, including one in June 1881, in which she had Hamilton arrested for hitting her and setting the place on fire. She ruled her girls with an iron hand, and they were always a little afraid of her. Early that year, a young man fresh out of the Oregon State Penitentiary, Pete Sullivan, had become infatuated with Molly Thompson, and began to hang around Bradley's place. Carrie took a liking to him and asked him to move in. She soon began to train him as a procurer. Bradley knew how to put on a great show. Customers would spend time in the parlor, where Professor Otto Jordan played piano and carefully minded his own business. Drinking was encouraged, as was chloroform use, before going upstairs with your chosen girl. Chloroform abuse is very dangerous, but it was undergoing a bit of a fad in 1881. Men would rub drops of chloroform into their mustache, and women into their upper lip, and the fumes would make them dizzy or a little sick. It was a popular pastime at Bradley's. Laudanum, a tincture of opium and alcohol, was another popular drug at Bradley's, used by the prostitutes habitually and by customers occasionally. Bradley had her own use for laudanum as well. When Sullivan would come across a mark with money, he would bring him back to Bradley's for a party. She would put laudanum in his drink, and he would pass out, waking up. Sometimes in another part of town, to find his money gone. Brown didn't have a lot of money on him the night he spent with Dolly Adams. The next day, he had her arrested and charged with stealing six dollars from him while he slept. It isn't clear what happened to the four thousand dollars Brown came to town with, although it is possible that he had blown most of it on his spree by this time. He was angry about the robbery, though. Angry enough that he insisted on pressing charges and seeing Dolly in jail. The Tenderloin was not in the North End 
where more respectable Portlanders prefer to keep their rowdy entertainment. Prostitution was tolerated outside the North End in places like Della Burgess's house on Park Street or Madame Lida Fonshaw's place one block from the prestigious Arlington Club, but only if it was discreet. Carrie Bradley was not discreet, and worse, the court of death was only a few blocks away from a cluster of churches in the respectable part of town. Multnomah County District Attorney John F. Caples saw Bradley's angry customer as a way to put pressure on Bradley and maybe even get her out of town. He already had four or five other charges pending against her and thought, with Brown's testimony, he might be able to finally shut her down. Brown agreed to testify against Bradley and even went so far as to pay a $25 bond to guarantee his appearance in court. Brown wasn't completely out of money. Over the next few days, he was seen drinking and gambling with friends around town as usual. Carrie Bradley was seriously angry, though. She told Sullivan to do whatever was necessary to get Brown back to her place. Sullivan spent several days following Brown from saloon to saloon, but was not able to get him alone until one night late in October, 1881. Brown was having a drink at Chauncey Dale's Grotto Saloon on Morrison between first and second. Brown was alone, so Sullivan and his young sidekick, Ace Nissinger, joined him. Brown was friendly. Sullivan was good at his job. When he mentioned going to Bradley's, Brown said he didn't want anything to do with the place. Sullivan signaled Ace to go get Carrie. Carrie Bradley and Dolly Adams showed up a little while later. When they came in, Brown said to Sullivan, that's the girl I had arrested. Carrie turned to him and said, is that you, Mr. Brown? She was all smiles charm as she apologized for the trouble they had experienced and soon they were drinking happily together. Sullivan and Brown even broke into song more than once until Chauncey Dale warned them to keep the noise down. Carrie said that they could sing and dance all they wanted at her place. Brown said that he didn't want to go back to that den of thieves but Bradley batted her eyes at him and said but tonight you go with me. Bradley was a charming and sexy woman. Brown was pretty drunk, so soon found himself in her comfortable parlor. Carrie ordered Professor Jordan to play a lively tune. Jordan noticed that Brown was tight when they came in, and Sullivan and Brown danced around a bit before settling on the lounge. Faye Cushing saw Carrie putting morphine into Brown's drink and said, Miss Carrie, don't do that. Brown snapped at her. Mind your own business. You always have too much to say around this house. And if you don't like it, you know what you can do. Brown had several drinks laced with morphine. Bradley asked Ace if he had any chloroform, but he was out. So she gave him one dollar and sent him to the drugstore for more. Brown was a tough man and a hard drinker. By 1 a.m., he had consumed a huge amount of brandy and an unknown amount of morphine. There's no wonder that he had to be carried upstairs and put into Sullivan's bed. Dolly and Carrie stripped him of his clothes, for some reason left his shirt and collar on. Then Carrie took a small white towel and saturated it with chloroform, tying it around Brown's nose and mouth. They left him alone in the bed and closed the door. Carrie took Dolly aside in the hall and told her that it was going to cost $150 to get Brown out of the way. And since it was her fault, it was money that she owed. Dolly agreed and gave her $90, saying that she would owe her the rest. Sullivan and Ace Dissinger went out and gambled until about 3 a.m. When they got home, Ace went to Faye Cushing's room. Sullivan slept with Carrie Bradley. At about 9 a.m., Dolly Adams knocked on Bradley's door. He's dead, she said. 
Sullivan rushed to his room and found Brown, whose face had turned purple, dead in the bed. Morphine and chloroform is a deadly mixture. Morphine slows the breathing, decreasing oxygen intake, and chloroform replaces oxygen. Brown suffocated without gaining consciousness. A few minutes later, Carrie Bradley burst into the room wearing a pair of brass knuckles that Charlie Hamilton had made to fit her hand. You two are in this as deep as me, she said. You have to help me get rid of them. She then turned to the corpse on the bed and vented her anger by beating it with the brass knuckles. Sullivan and Adams got the message. When Carrie had tired herself out, she ordered Sullivan to take the body downstairs to the basement and she sent Dolly Adams out to find Charlie Hamilton. When the other members of the household woke up, Carrie told them that she wasn't feeling well and sent them back to work at the White House south of town on McAdam Road while she kept her house closed up. Hamilton, with Tommy Wilson, a gambler's apprentice who would become one of the most famous gamblers in town by the end of the century, soon arrived and found Sullivan trying to dig a grave in the unfinished basement with a fireplace shovel. Bradley said that she wanted a six-foot-deep grave, but Sullivan was barely able to scratch out a few feet before covering the body with dirt. Hamilton was disgusted and sent Wilson out to get a trunk and hire a buggy. He had a plan. On a cover of darkness that night, Hamilton, Sullivan, and a young hack driver named John A. Mahone moved the body, dropping the trunk twice along the way and injuring Hamilton's foot in the process. They finally reached the waterfront and disposed of the corpse. That night was a macabre comedy of errors as the drug addicts worked ineptly to dispose of the corpse only to have it found grotesquely sticking out of the water a few weeks later. The trials that followed were a sensation. Most of the defendants had skipped town and were arrested in San Francisco. John Mahone testified for the prosecution and was not charged. Charlie Hamilton was never seen again. There were rumors of him visiting Portland, but nothing was confirmed. There was a rumor that he had been hanged by Mexican authorities. It would make sense that someone hanged Charlie Hamilton. Peter Sullivan pled guilty and served four years in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Carrie Bradley accused Dolly Adams of being the killer, but no one believed her. Adams testified for the state and only served a short time in jail. She undoubtedly changed her name again when she was released. Bradley was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 12 years. She was released after five years and set up a new Bagnio in Sishan, California. Sishan would later change its name to Mount Shasta. Pete Sullivan, was arrested in San Francisco in 1894 for enticing young women into prostitution. He was still plying his old trade as a procurer for Bradley's new place. Sullivan was sentenced to five years at San Quentin. Sullivan's conviction and sentence were too much for Carrie Bradley. She shot herself shortly after Sullivan went to prison. The murder trial had serious political repercussions. Both of Bradley's defense attorneys were charged with attempting to influence the jury. W. Scott Beebe, one of the defense attorneys, was a partisan of Lucien Bresser. The charges against him and O.P. Mason were most likely politically motivated, and they don't seem to have resulted in any type of discipline. Beebe would not be a stranger to scandal, though. He specialized in criminal defense and probate law, and he often seems to have mixed the two. In one probate case in 1890, one of the parties involved shot the other, but only wounded him. In 1896, Beebe was party to a nasty divorce in which his wife accused him of morphine addiction, financial impropriety, and insanity. There was evidence for all of her charges. Police Chief James Lipus was a political victim of the Bradley case as well. Lipus, who had been an outlaw, a law-flaunting gambler, Portland town marshal, and Portland's first 
police chief, was charged with malfeasance in handling of the Bradley case. And while he was on trial for the charges, the old issue of bribery in the bulk case resurfaced. It was the end for Lapis, and he soon retired from police work. The political shenanigans of Lapis and Bessier hampered District Attorney Caleb's campaign to move prostitution out of the Tenderloin. Even with all the publicity of Bradley's campaign, in 1885, another murder in the court of death signaled the end of open prostitution in the Tenderloin. The second lurid murder in the Tenderloin in just a few years increased public pressure to move the prostitutes out. By the end of the decade, they had quietly relocated to the North End, where they didn't have to be seen by respectable people, and Portland's Tenderloin soon faded from public memory. Now this evening on Gremlin Time, we've been looking at some of the more lurid incidences from Portland's dark past. I've been reading from Murder and Mayhem in Portland, Oregon, written by local writer J.D. Chandler, who unfortunately passed away. Our next piece moves us into the 20th century and is entitled Taken for a Ride, 1933. The year 1933 was a hard one, not just in Portland. The nation had just survived the worst year of what was then known as the Hoover Depression, and all the banks were closed for a series of bank holidays. Money was scarce and tempers were short. Violence flared in labor and farm disputes all over the Midwest, and even struck close to home when a mob of unemployed nearly lynched the sheriff trying to evict the family from their home in Seattle. In the first move to end prohibition, 3.2% beer became legal. But there was still a good market for the hard stuff. Bootlegging was a lucrative profession. In fact, it seemed like only criminals had money. Violent armed robbers such as Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow John Dillinger and Charles Pretty Boy Floyd gained huge publicity and fed a popular culture that glamorized violence. These public enemies represented the rural criminal response to the Great Depression. In the cities, the criminals organized into semi-corporate entities that controlled areas of vice. These organizations such as Al Capone's group in Chicago and the New York crime families gained immense power and capital during the Prohibition era. In Portland, organized crime was almost always been controlled by locals and heavily defended against outside interests. Crime organizations, other than some of the Chinese tongs, have tended to be fairly small and specialized. Prohibition had created such a great opportunity that bootlegging was the one sideline that anyone could do. Frank Kodak kept a speakeasy on Southeast Water Street near the corner of Yam Hill, but his specialty was safe cracking. In the jargon of the era, Frank Kodak was a yeg. On the ground floor was a machine shop that didn't have much work. Kodak's place, a bar room, his apartment, and several rooms for rent, was arranged in sort of a maze on the second floor. Kodak's friend Jake Silverman could be counted on to bring prostitutes in his wife's big maroon Studebaker sedan whenever necessary. The car, which could easily carry six to eight passengers in addition to the driver, was a common sight on Water Street, as well as near Silverman's Riverside Hotel on the west side. Silverman had spent a few years in the state penitentiary for selling stolen victory stamps at the end of the First World War. But his main job had always been as a pimp, or as he liked to say, hotel keeper. Frank, shy Frank Kodak, understood stealth. He publicly claimed that he had gone straight and that he would work with young convicts to help them get back on their feet so they could go straight too. 
He went straight to his combination saloon brothel rooming house in the industrial east side. The men who entered his rooms were usually fresh out of prison, and they had already been organized, either in prison or before their convictions. Most of them were burglars, specializing in businesses, restaurants, and drugstores seemed to be particularly popular. He had given up on the no Portland jobs rule by then, and it wasn't uncommon for them to hit businesses on the west side. Kodak's health was not good. He suffered from tuberculosis and arthritis. He preferred the more sedentary work of planning the crimes and fencing or laundering the proceeds. He was well-liked in the neighborhood, and most of the men in his organization were very loyal to him. But not all of them. Jimmy Walker, 38, was not a loyal member of the gang. Worse than that, Kodak thought he had stolen a watch from one of his lodgers. Kodak was a criminal, but he didn't like a thief. James Walker was a small-time burglar, just like most of his fellow lodgers, but he liked to play the big shot. He wanted to be somebody, but he never really was. He must have been a charmer, though, because Frank Kodak's girlfriend, Edith McLean, went for him right away. McLean, 38, was what was known at the time as a gun mall. Gun malls were gangsters' girlfriends. She came to Portland from Florence, Oregon during the war. She was married for a few years, and she had four children, but each of them had been raised by a different family. McLean spent her life among Portland's underworld, drinking in speakeasies and hanging out with criminals, violent and nonviolent. In February 1933, Jimmy Walker was released from prison in Salem after a sentence for a Klamath Falls burglary. He had served two previous prison turns for business burglaries in Wisconsin and Kansas. When released from the Oregon Penitentiary, Jimmy went straight to Frank Kodak's place. By April, Kodak and Edith McLean were quarreling, and she and Jimmy were spending a lot of time together. When Jimmy was accused of stealing a watch, Frank had his excuse to kick him out of his room. The two men fought, and Jimmy took Frank's gun away from him. Frank was upset by the altercation and took to his bed. Somehow, accidentally, or on purpose, Jimmy fired Frank's gun in one of the upstairs rooms. The bullet passed through the flimsy wall that hit Frank in the back. Jimmy swore it was an accident, but he knew he was gonna get burned. Jimmy headed across town to a hotel near the corner of Southwest 12th and Morrison, where a buddy of his, Ray Moore, was staying. Moore was a drug addict who specialized in smash-and-grab robberies. Jimmy told Moore about the accidental shooting and begged for a $10 loan so he could get out of town. Moore probably gave Jimmy some dope, some form of opiate, and said he would help. Jimmy got word to Edith, and she soon arrived with a small suitcase. She was ready to run because she had all her personal papers and some newspaper clippings about her children's achievements with her meager belongings. She and Jimmy registered as a married couple for a room of their own, and Moore said that he would arrange a ride for them to Astoria. Frank Kodak was rushed to Good Samaritan Hospital, where doctors decided that his health was too frail to allow them to remove the bullet in his back. Police must have been shocked to find illegal alcohol in his place because they arrested Abe Levine, the well-dressed bartender, with a record of robbing clothing stores, as well as William Edwards, a waiter, and Olaf Olson, the cook. Levine, who had known Kodak since they had been in prison together, was beside himself over the shooting. When Jake Silverman showed up at a police headquarters and vouched for Levine, saying that they needed to go find the guy who shot shy Frank, they released him into the hotel keeper's custody. According to the unbelievable story the two men told later, Levine spent the rest of the evening in a malt shop downtown. Silverman went home, picked up his son-in-law, and then dropped his wife's big sedan off at a garage for washing. Both men seemed to have forgotten about finding Jimmy Walker. 
Meanwhile, Ray Moore got in touch with his old buddy, Larry Johnson, another ex-convict, and introduced him to Walker as the guy who could get him out of town. They just had to wait until it got dark and a car would come to pick him up. Walker and Edith McLean weren't hard to convince, and they spent the rest of the day in their hotel room, waiting for dark. Ray Moore went down the street to Zell's jewelry store on Southwest Morrison Street, smashed the window, grabbed a few trays of watches, and jumped into a taxi. It didn't take long for the police to catch up with the junkie, and so he had a perfect alibi for the murder he knew was going to occur. Larry Johnson got in touch with Jack Krim, an ex-convict friend of Kodak's, who was making a reputation for himself as a boxer. Krim was a large, good-looking man, a Modoc Indian from Klamath Falls, who claimed to be a nephew of Captain Jack, the chief of the Modocs who had led the fierce resistance that killed General Edward Canby near Tool Lake, California in 1873. Krim was not really old enough to have been a nephew of the man who had died 60 years before, like to take advantage of Captain Jack's fearsome reputation by claiming that he had his uncle's war bonnet and ceremonial war club. Neither of these items are traditional implements of the Modoc, but few people who admired the boxer knew that or cared. Krim and Johnson went to Kodak's place where they retrieved his gun. Shortly before 7.30 p.m. that night, a large maroon sedan pulled up in front of the hotel where Jimmy Walker and Edith McLean were waiting. Several people described the car. Witnesses said that a man in a wine-colored suit was next to the driver, who resembled Jack Silverman. A large man answering the description of Jack Krim helped Edith McLean into the back seat, and the car drove away, heading west. About an hour later, several witnesses saw the maroon sedan driving up the hill on Dutch Canyon Road just west of Scapoose. The big car was full of people as it went up the hill slowly. A little while later, several residents of the farming community heard gunshots in the hills. Gunfire was common in the hills around Scapoose, a popular hunting site, so no one paid it any attention. A few people saw the big maroon car driving much faster down the hill a few minutes later. The next morning, L.W. Morgan, driving up Dutch Canyon Road to his small logging operation, found the bullet-riddled bodies of Jimmy Walker and Edith McLean. Oregonian headline, April 23, 1933. Gangsters slay two near Portland. Police Chief Leon Jenkins assumed that the gangland killing was linked with the shooting of Frank Kodak. So police began to round up Kodak's friends, starting with Abe Levine, who'd been out of jail for less than 24 hours. Jake Silverman was taken into custody and identified as the driver of the sedan by witnesses. They found Mrs. Silverman's Studebaker at a garage on Southeast Belmont and seized it just before garage attendants could switch the new tires on it for a worn-out pair, as Silverman's brother Morris had requested that morning. The tires matched prints left in the mud at the murder scene. Ed Francisco Frisco Burke was wearing a wine-colored suit similar to the one described by witnesses when he was arrested. Some of Kodak's friends, such as Robert Baby Burns, seemed to want to be arrested. Burns, who had recently been released from Oregon State Penitentiary after serving 10 years for armed robbery, showed up at the city hall and asked to visit Abe Levine. Guards found a loaded revolver and a box full of bullets in his pocket. Under interrogation, he confessed to four armed robberies that had occurred in the last two days. In all, 27 people were arrested, most of them ex-convicts or their girlfriends, and most of them were held as either suspects or material witnesses for more than a week. Jack Krim was arrested at a speakeasy on Southwest Montgomery Drive, owned by one of his girlfriends, Betty Lamoureux. He didn't have an alibi for the night of the killing, and a blood-stained suit was found in his hotel room. Even worse, Edith McLean's purse was found in his room, and he was carrying Shy Frank's gun. 
Krim laughed off the charges, claiming that the blood came from a fight at Lamoureux's beer garden, where he worked as a bouncer. He said that he picked up the purse at Kodak's when he got the gun. McLean's purse included a birth certificate, several school certificates, and a small collection of personal photographs. It was not the kind of a thing that she would have left behind. Just like everyone else involved with the Walker-McLean murders, Jack Krim had spent a few years in the Oregon State Penitentiary for assault with a deadly weapon, committed in Klamath Falls in 1925. Recently, he had started a boxing career as part of Ted Sulkett's lineup of boxers. Sulkett, who eventually became the leading boxing promoter in the Pacific Northwest before his death in 1956, was promoting a popular group of boxers who all took pride in their ethnic abilities. Krim was his Indian boxer, often known as the half-breed. Sulkid had several African-American boxers, a Filipino, a Chinese, and a few other boxers. Though through capitalizing on ethnic identities, Sulkid developed a very loyal group of fans, each rooting for his favorite boxer. All the suspects and witnesses, except Ray Moore and Baby Burns, stonewalled the police. And the only one who faced charges was Jake Silverman, who was charged with first-degree murder. He was tried by Columbia County, where the murders occurred, and the trial was held in St. Helens. Portland Police and the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office supported the prosecution. Evidence was a little thin. Silverman was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to three years. He was released from prison in 1936 and returned to Portland where he ran a tavern, most likely with prostitutes, until his death from a heart attack in 1949. Frank Kodak, who was probably paying smile money to the police, survived his wounds and continued to run his speakeasy and burglary ring until 1942 when he went to prison on illegal alcohol charges. Abel Levine was already there after being convicted of the robbery of another clothing store in 1940. Jack Krim enjoyed popularity as the half-breed boxer for several years before he was arrested for violence during a labor strike in 1938. Krim was a goon in the Teamsters organization that was trying to move in on the Portland rackets. By the end of World War II, Krim had returned to Portland made a reputation for himself as a boxing trainer. By the time Shy Frank went to jail for the last time, people like James Big Jim Elkins had begun to take over the smaller organizations in an attempt to control Portland's criminal enterprises. Elkins's operation self-destructed in the 1950s from his attempts to stop the Seattle Teamsters from taking over and what came to be known as the Portland Vice Scandal. From time to time, large national criminal syndicates attempted to gain control over crime in Portland. They were usually stopped by well-organized local groups. We've been reading this evening on Gremlin Time some excerpts from Murder and Mayhem in Portland, Oregon. A nice little history book written by a uh, local author, uh, J.D. Chandler, who unfortunately passed away last May of uh, 2021. Uh, if you ever go to the uh, bookstore or the library, check out the history section and you can find a, a number of his books, including a recent one that he worked on with uh, Teresa Kennedy Dupay, Murder and Scandal in Portland, in Prohibition Portland. Sex, Vice, and Misdeeds in Mayor Baker's Reign. And so, uh, you know, Portland's got quite a dark history, and so it's always interesting to read about it. So uh, thanks for listening. Uh, as I said, this is Fortunato, and I'll be back again with Gremlin Time uh, on the third Monday of uh, next month. So I hope you'll tune in again. And so until then, so long.
Show your support for KBOO programming by picking up the special limited edition KBOO Music That Moves You silicone collapsible water bottle. It's the perfect accessory to keep you hydrated while KBOO keeps you moving. Get yours now at kboo.fm slash moves bottle. You're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kboo.fm. Stay tuned as we bring you another in the intriguing radio series, Self-Help Radio. 